With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Temple Camp last summer? The stranger, a young fellow of perhaps 18, shook his head. With one of the troops from... No, said the young man. Hmm, said Tom, still holding the lantern up. I thought, don't you fellows remember him? Connie shook his head. Gary also. Never saw him in my life, said Doc. Hmm, said Tom. Maybe I, just for a minute, I thought, I guess you fellows are right. The stranger was dressed in the regulation camping outfit, the kind of costume usually seen on dummies in the windows of sporting goods stores in the spring, with a spick-and-span tent in the background, a model lunch basket near and a canoe crowded in his knobby outfit was very much the worse for wear however and he looked about as fresh as the immaculate phoebe snow would look after a real railroad journey maybe i can be rescued now he said imploringly clinging to tom i saw the lights way down there there was only one till tonight and tonight i counted seven little bits of ones i tried to get to them but i got lost you can't go to them it looks as if you can but you can't they're just as far away no matter how far you go they get farther and farther nobody can ever get away from here are you afraid of dead people no said doc we're scouts is if a person looks very different then he's dead isn't he come on said doc we'll see we'll never get off this hill i've tried every way oh yes we will spoke up gary putting his arm over the boy's shoulder and urging him along they could see that he was hardly rational and gary better than any of the others knew how to handle him it's terrible without a light he said i spilled all the oil i'm glad you've got a light what's your name gary asked jeffrey waring come on i'll show you the place he shuddered as he spoke once more tom held his lantern up to the white distracted face he was never at camp laughed doc hm said tom apparently but half convinced a few steps brought them to a little clearing where stood a rough shack outside it fastened against a tree was a vegetable crate with bars nailed across it the silent evidence of departed pets several fishing rods lay against a tree Close by was a makeshift fireplace. On a rough bunk inside the shack lay a man, no longer young, with iron-gray hair. His eyes were open and staring, and one seemed larger than the other. Doc felt his pulse and found that he was living. 
He fell off the rocks and hurt his arm. I think it's broken, said Geoffrey. It bled, and I bandaged it. Doc raised the bandaged arm, and it fell heavily. Removing the bandage carefully, he saw that the cut itself was not dangerous, but from first-aid studies he thought the man was suffering from an apoplectic stroke or something of that nature. He wondered if the injury to the arm had not been incidental to the man's seizure and sudden fall. People sometimes lingered in an unconscious condition for days, he knew. It was hardly a case for first aid, but it was certainly a case for skill and resource, for whatever happened, the patient, dead or living, would have to be taken away from this mountain camp. With Gary's help, he raised the victim into a recumbent posture, piling everything available under the head, while Connie hurried back and forth to the brook, bringing wet applications for the head and neck. There was no sign of returning consciousness, and the question was how to get the patient away down to Temple Camp, where medical aid might be had, and where any contingency might be best handled. The four boys, greatly hampered in their discussion by Geoffrey, whose long vigil had brought him to the verge of collapse, decided that it would be quite useless to signal for help, since it would mean another expedition with most of the difficulties of their own, even if attempted after daybreak. So they decided to wait for dawn, which happily would come soon, and with the first sign of it to send a smudge signal that they were coming and to have a doctor at camp. They believed that in the daylight they could carry the patient back over the same path which they had so laboriously opened, and though delay was irksome, this plan seemed the only feasible one to follow. Despite their weariness, none could sleep, so they kindled a little fire and sat about it chatting while they counted time, impatiently waiting for the first streak of daylight. It was then that they learned from the overwrought boy something of his history, but they got it piecemeal and had to patch together as best they could his rather disjointed talk. "'Is he your father?' Doc asked. "'No, he's my uncle,' said Geoffrey. "'He isn't a real governor. I only call him that. He's eccentric. Know what that is? If we hadn't come trout-fishing, it would have been all right. I could have sent my pigeons from the boat. I've got a regular coop there.' It costs thirty dollars. But you like the stalking, don't you? Connie asked. Yes, but I can't be quiet enough. I can't sneak up to them. You have to be quiet and stealthy when you stalk. They made out that Mr. Waring was something of a sportsman and was wealthy and eccentric. We live in a big house in Vale Centre, Geoffrey told them, and we have fountains, and I have twenty-seven pigeons and two dogs. And I can have anything I want except an automobile. I can't have an automobile because I'm nervous. You don't mean you live near Edgevale Village, down the Hudson? Gary asked in surprise. I live about two miles from the center myself. We live in a house that costs thousands and thousands of dollars. But I like our boat best. If there's a war, we're going to give it to the government. But if there isn't any war, it's going to be mine some day. It appeared that Geoffrey and his uncle lived alone, save for the servants, and had cruised up the Hudson to Catskill Landing in their boat for the trout-fishing, of which the old gentleman was fond. How the pair had happened to penetrate to this isolated spot was not quite clear, but the boys gathered that it had been a favourite haunt of Mr. Waring's youthful days. 
he told me he'd bring me and show me said geoffrey and that we'd stay here and catch fish and i could send my pigeons back to james he's our chauffeur and i'd get better so's i could remember things better do you think you could get better living in the woods surest thing you know said gary the picture of the kindly old gentleman bringing his none too robust nephew to this lonely spot which lingered in his memory perhaps as the scene of woodland sports of his own boyhood touched the four boys and seemed to bring them in closer sympathy with the figure that lay prone and motionless within the little shack i can have anything i want geoffrey told them again spotty cost fifty dollars but he died that's because i was sick and my brain didn't work good my other carrier cost thirty dollars and i sent him to james to tell him the governor was hurt the scouts told him the fate of the pigeon and how they had received the message But we'll never get away from here Jeffrey said hopelessly. We'll never find our way back With the first light of dawn Gary increased the dying blaze and sent the smudge signal Piling damp leaves on the fire. He caused a straight thin column of thick smoke to rise high into the air and by inverting the deserted pigeon coop over this and removing and replacing it as the morse code required he imprinted against the vast gray dawn the words coming have doctor they knew well enough that someone in the camp would keep sleepless vigil watching for just such a message three times the words were spelled out in smoke to make sure that they would be caught and understood to geoffrey whose only resource had been his pet pigeon and who had been unnerved by his inability to find his way from the hill the sending of this message and the quiet orderly preparations for departure which followed were the cause of gaping amazement he clung to gary as the others got his uncle onto the stretcher and walked along at his side plying him with excited questions sometimes it was necessary for him to take a corner while one of the scouts went ahead to open a way and then his panic was pitiable it did not seem at all peculiar to the others that he should single out gary and cling to him for everybody fell for gary almost at first sight what they did notice was that he appeared to shun tom who indeed was entitled to all his gratitude and was the hero of the occasion if anyone was but then he was a queer boy anyway and thoroughly shaken up by his experience as for gary the sudden hit which he had apparently made quite amused him You should worry he said laughingly to Tom and Tom shrugged his shoulders and smiled End of chapter 6